This is Matt Raymond at the Library of Congress. Each year, thousands of book lovers of all ages visit the nation's capital to celebrate the joys of reading and lifelong literacy at the National Book Festival, sponsored by the Library of Congress and hosted by First Lady Laura Bush. Now in its eighth year, this free event, held on the National Mall Saturday, September 27th, will spark readers' passion for learning as they interact with the nation's best-selling authors, illustrators, and poets. Even if you can't attend the festival in person, you can still participate online. These podcast interviews with well-known authors and other materials are available through the National Book Festival website at www.loc.gov bookfest. In fact, we have some of the world's best authors with us because I now have the honor of talking with best-selling author Philippa Gregory. Ms. Gregory has a penchant for taking history and weaving compelling tales full of drama and passion, ranging from the times of the Reformation to World War I. Many people know Ms. Gregory best for her book, The Other Boleyn Girl, which is published in 26 countries and was released as a major motion picture in 2007. With more than one million copies in print in the United States alone, The Other Boleyn Girl was also the recipient of the Parker Penn Novel of the Year Award in 2002 and the Romantic Times Fictional Biography Award. Her latest book, The Other Queen, is due out this September. Ms. Gregory, welcome. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be with you. We appreciate your time. I understand that you began your career as a journalist. What inspired you to pursue novel writing, and in particular, why historical fiction? Um, well, I didn't really, I never intended to be a novelist. I did uh, do my training as a journalist, and then after I had worked on a newspaper for some years, I realized that what I should have done originally was go to university. Uh, so I went to university at the age of 21 and simply fell in love with history at that point. Just It just seemed to me to explain everything. Um, I was, you know, a very, very powerful convert. And uh, from that point, I wanted to work as a historian. And uh, when I couldn't get an academic post in the English universities at the time, I just started writing a novel. I was, had just completed my PhD. And I started writing a novel just for my own amusement and very quickly thought that it could be published. I, I knew enough about novel writing by then, having worked on novels for my PhD, uh, to think that it was well enough structured and, and an exciting enough paced story. And amazingly, that was the first novel I had ever written from beginning to end. And that was my novel, Wideacre, which was published in England, America, and worldwide, and became a worldwide bestseller. Uh, you know, it's a really extraordinary story. When I tell it to people, I always say, you know, don't, don't hate me for this. <laughs> it was extraordinary for me. Now, what can you tell us about your latest book, The Other Queen? Well, The Other Queen is, the other queen of the title is Mary, Queen of Scots, and she is in every sense, the alternative queen, both for Scotland, which has expelled her by the time my novel starts, and for England, to whom she is either Elizabeth's legitimate next heir, or some would say the legitimate heir, and Elizabeth is not. So she's really a kind of alternative and a threat. What was interesting for me was to study this period in her life, which hardly anybody has had much interest in, but it's actually she spends more time in northern England than she does at any other place at any other time of her life. She's there for 16 years. And it's after she's been expelled from Scotland as a, a, a widow, as, a, as a, in a sense a refugee from an uprising, and she is certain that Elizabeth will restore her to the throne of Scotland. And so, indeed, you would expect 
to happen. But what in fact happens is that Elizabeth betrays her promises to Mary and keeps her under house arrest in England for the next 16 years before Mary's uh, execution. What do you find compelling about Mary, Queen of Scots, as a historical figure? Well, probably everything that you wouldn't expect. That uh, when I was brought up at school and, and learned the story of Mary, Queen of Scots, she was very much portrayed as this romantic, Roman Catholic, doomed, you know, mistaken woman who fell in love with not one, not two, but three really dreadful men and married them um, and lived to regret each of them. Um, was disastrous for them, was disastrous for the country, and whose life is just one long mistake, really. Uh, people have really elevated that into a view of w what women are like when they're in power. So uh, for a start, I think there's a whole issue about women in power, which is borne out through the way people read Mary Queen of Scots. But most interestingly for me is that there's now a kind of revival of interest and studies in her, and these are done very much from a new perspective. And people are very much suggesting that what we have in her is actually a woman who is a very astute queen, who is very determined to be successful, who is inc physically incredibly courageous, who is prepared to go out in armour, in battle, to fight for her throne, and who, when she's imprisoned by Elizabeth in England, goes on fighting and goes on plotting and escaping for indeed the whole of the 16 years. I mean, she's a remarkably brave and determined woman. And I don't think we've seen that side of her at all, and that's what I tried to bring over in my novel. Now, how do you translate real historical figures and events into riveting page-turners? How do you stay true to history in, in the process? Well, the first criteria is that you really have to know all the history that there is. So I have a huge amount of research and notes and stuck up on my wall, like timelines of where everybody is and what the weather's like and what's going on. So to start off with, it's the body of the research, I think, that really guides the novel. If there's a historical fact that we know to be the case, I never make up an alternative. If we know that she is at somewhere at a certain moment in time, then that's what happens in the novel. Where I create fiction is when we simply don't know where she is or what she's doing. That occurs a bit less with Mary Queen of Scots because she's so well recorded. Hmm. But very often we don't know the details of the conspiracy or whether, you know, whether the conspirators had been turned, whether they were spies or not. So that, I look at the history quite speculatively. And um, in terms of animating it, of course I invent all the conversations and I invent all the inner life, all the psychology of the characters because they don't keep diaries of that sort of thing. So we almost never know what someone says or what someone feels because simply that's not recorded by them at the time. Now, you've written several books that have had to do with the Tudors of England, from The Constant Princess to The Boleyn Inheritance and The Virgin's Lover. What is it about this particular family that fascinates both you and the public so much? I think they're larger than life. So I think you do get these fantastically interesting characters. I mean, Henry with you know, quite apart from changing the face of England forever. You know, six wives is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, he is, a, you know, and he starts so young and so handsome and so full of promise, and he ends, I think, insane and, you know, hugely obese and uh, almost a caricature of, of a tyrant. Um, the women themselves, I think, are very often not understood and not well regarded, and so one sees this kind of extraordinary development of of really working on the material and saying, I don't think, for instance, Catherine Howard 
you know, I think most modern historians would now agree that Catherine Howard has to be regarded as differently from how she was written, you know, as, as more recently as 10 years ago even. So uh, partly there's that sense of rediscovering the past. Um, and I just think these stories are incredible. It's mm. a society in dramatic change. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's the making of modern England in many ways. So there's much that we can recognize and there's much that we find strange. Now, your book, The Other Boleyn Girl, you chose to tell this infamous story through the eyes of the little-known sister Mary as opposed to the more illustrious, I guess, historical figure of Anne. Why did you, uh, why did you choose to approach it that way? Well, first of all, it was an absolute response to my unbelieving excitement when I discovered the character of Mary Boleyn existed at all. Um, it's very easy to forget now that before I wrote of her, in a sense, she was unknown to history. She appears as a footnote in the minor historical books. But, uh, you know, there's nobody had written a biography of her, even. There's nothing. There's nothing on her of any major significance at all. Um, and I came across her and went, like, this is such an extraordinary story. Just imagine being, uh, you know, so intimate in the story of Anne Boleyn and Henry. Imagine being the Boleyn girl he loved first. Imagine stepping aside for your sister. It has such extraordinary ingredients for a novelist. You know, sibling rivalry, a hint of incest in that you're, you know, sleeping with your sister's man. Um, The competition to be Queen of England, the the decision which Mary Boleyn, I think, consciously takes that she doesn't want to go down that route. Her decision to marry, in a sense, a nobody and walk away from this incredibly glamorous court. It's, you know, it's it's an extraordinary story, which until I came across it, you know, historians had known, but nobody had seen the potential of it in terms of telling the story of the Tudors through her eyes. So, you know, in a sense, now it's so very published, you know, now so many people have read it. It's obviously interesting. But at the time, uh, you know, when I first came across it, nobody had heard of her. Uh, So it was a real journey of discovery for me, and I think it has been for other people. Now, obviously, you've written uh, extensively about the British monarchy. Have you ever thought about writing about other families, whether royal families in other countries or other families elsewhere? No, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty committed to the British for two good reasons, I think. One is expertise and one is ignorance. I know, really, quite a lot about the Tudors now. I've built up, you know, a good body of research. I've been working on them for, I think, something really frightening, like eight or ten years now. So I really am familiar with all, not just the family, but the, the things like the agricultural developments, the clothes, the food, the everything you need to know in terms of social history. You know, I've been working on that, so I do know about this. So it's a period that's very comfortable for me to write in. And the other thing is I don't have, uh, I don't have another language strong enough for me to read original documents in. Mm. So I wouldn't... And I don't know enough about French culture, for instance, or Spanish culture. I did quite a lot on the Spanish royal family in the introduction of the constant princess. And that really is, was new material for me. You know, like, um, you know, like I'm ashamed to say, many English people, you know, we do focus on English history. We don't know much about um, international history. I've been very, very interested in America. I continue to be very interested in America. But, you know, you will note that the... Um, period that I've written about, which is um, the, the Virgin Virgin Earth in particular, the story of John Tredeskin, the gardener who owns property in Virginia and visits uh, in three very key periods of American history in Virginia. Um, 
America is part of English colony then, so in a sense the expertise I have in England I can, I can overlap. Um, I'm very conscious that societies may look the same you know, and be extraordinarily different, and I'm, I'm very careful about what I know and what I don't know. Let me ask about your research process. How do you research the facts behind your books? And I have to ask you, obviously, on, on this side of the pond, if you've ever used the Library of Congress. Do you know, I've never used the Library of Congress, and I've never been to Washington. Um, we use your uh, decimal system. Uh, <laughs> so we do, so I, you know, I have great respect in the sense that, uh, you know, I am guided by your, your codes on books. But uh, it, it, it will be a new experience for me when I come to Washington. I'm really looking forward to it. The research is very much library-based, though. I work mostly in a private library in London called the London Library, which is a fantastic institution, um, some 100 years old now. Um, it's based in a very old, rather rambling Georgian building, and they have these wonderful... You would love it as a librarian, I know you would. They have these wonderful metal stacks, so it's you just go into the stacks and you're, you can browse in the stacks, but you're on these extraordinary metal floors which are kind of slatted, so if you were wearing high heels, I'm sure you wouldn't. But when I am wearing high heels, at any moment you can get absolutely stuck. <laughs> and nobody would come by for a century. <laughs> and of course, you wouldn't scream because you're in a library. So it's a fantastically eccentric place to work. And they have wonderful, wonderful... They've been a copyright library from the very beginning. So they have this extraordinary, you know, shelves and shelves and shelves of material of the most extraordinary stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they also keep things that you wouldn't find anywhere but England, which is like old, old, old editions of parochial magazines. So you never know what you're going to find when you go down to the basement and start looking at the magazine section. So I'm a, I'm a real researcher. I love, I love the text. I love the books. I love old books. I don't tend to use original documents very much. My Latin isn't at all strong. Hmm. Um, and because until now I've always been working in the Tudors, there's so much... You know, almost all the original documents, almost all the state papers have been published um, unedited, so you can get everything you need in a published book. Of course, interestingly, more and more stuff comes online, and uh, I imagine I'll be working, you know, more and more online as as more and more stuff comes on. Um, Having said that, I'm very, very cautious about some of the sites you can get. I found myself reading an extraordinary uh, viewpoint of Henry VIII the other day, which looked you know, which said things that I had no idea had taken place whatsoever. And I found I was, at the end of it, I found that I'd just spent half an hour on some kid's grade paper where he'd fundamentally made things up. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when you go, I hate the internet. This is an absolute (laughs) waste of my time and energy. Um, But, you know, clever boy to post it. (laughs) He didn't know what he was talking about. Well, now, you, you take characters who are mainly women, and you give them strong voices and ingenuity and, and power, and, and sometimes traits that weren't necessarily, um, have not been carried out historically. Uh, do you think that there are lessons to be learned in your books and in the way you make your characters so strong? I think very often it's a redefinition of the characters. That um, The one that I think is so startling is probably Catherine Howard, who is until I wrote my novel, until I read some of the very modern uh, historians on her, was pretty universally regarded as, you know, a very, very stupid girl who found herself either married against her will to Henry VIII without the sense to protest, and then, um, you know, was, is, was widely regarded as promiscuous and, in a sense, partly de- deserved her death. 
you know, more recent history has established that she was probably 14 when she was married to Henry VIII. And I think it's absolutely appropriate that a woman and a feminist and a historian such as myself should insist that we look at the record again, we look at her life again, in a much more sympathetic, sisterly, um, but also realistic way, and say, what chance does a girl of 14 have of opposing the will of a 45-year-old king? Obviously, none at all. You know, family aren't going to support her. Mm. You know, this is an absolutely arranged marriage in a way that we understand the worst sort of arranged marriage to be. There's no consent sought from her, really, at all. Subsequently, her reputation for promiscuity is based upon the fact that she had some kind of sexual experience which may well have been a sexual assault from her music teacher when she was a young girl. She considered herself betrothed and married with a young man when she was a little bit older, and they probably had full intercourse, but she considered herself to be his wife, and he considered her to be his husband. She then got married off to the king, and nobody inquired about this, so most people knew that something of that nature had gone on. And then as something like a 16-year-old, she falls really deeply in love with one of the king's uh, gentlemen that she sees daily. And the only letter we have in her own hand is her love letter to him, and it's very moving. If you read it sympathetically, it's the love letter of a girl of 16 in love for the first time. It's very, it's genuinely very moving. Now, I can't possibly write a history which suggests that a girl in those circumstances deserves to be put to death for not being faithful to her absolutely physically repellent husband of 45. So in a sense, this is a redefinition of history. It's certainly a feminist take on history. But I also think it's a just rewriting of history. And I never offer it as more than another version. You know, I think people should read my version of Catherine Howard and then they're very welcome to read other people's versions of Catherine Howard and make their own mind up. Hmm. I never claim to be the person who tells the truth, but I do claim to tell the historical facts as I think they may be more justly told. Interesting. Uh, I get to talk to many authors, and here's a question that I actually have not asked all that often, and, and that is, do you experience writer's block? I'm very, very lucky in that the only time I experience writer's block, which is rare, is usually when I'm trying to do something that doesn't suit the structure of the novel, uh, when I'm trying to do something that, in a sense, will pull the story out of shape. That hardly ever happens now because the shape of the novel is very much dictated by the historical events. So I start off with a very strong discipline. I, I'm not free to decide how the story is going to go history has already done that for me that's set but if i'm if i'm stuck on something it's usually because i can't get a voice or because i can't understand somebody or because it, there's something about them that that just blocks me um that was the case initially when i was writing lady jane rochford in the bolin inheritance because she was she's so uh, to modernize insanely malicious it's hard to understand what benefit she got. I mean, she risked her life in order to uh, encourage the young queen into an adulterous affair with, an, with another man, knowing that that would be Catherine's death, and yet she continued to do that. And then, ultimately, she was accused of being complicit in it, which she was. Um, and so it cost her her life, too. And you go, like, this is madness. You know, how can such a thing be? So uh, what I do then is I take the dog for a long, long, long walk, and he knows when I'm stuck because he gets walked off his paws. He really does. 
And if I'm absolutely stuck, I'll take a sandwich in one pocket and a drink in another, and I'll just walk out, and I'll go on walking away from my home, which fortunately is on a network of public footpaths in a very beautiful part of England. Mm. And I could literally walk probably for a week before I ran into a city. Mm. So um, I'm, going to, I'm going to solve the problem before that happens. I've never yet stayed out after dark, uh, but I often, it's the unconscious who's doing it. So you have to frighten the unconscious. So I say very loudly, I'm now going to walk. I'm going to walk away from home until I've solved this problem. When I've solved the problem, I'll walk back. And the unconscious gets scared round about dusk <laughs> and gives up and says, okay, here's the solution. And it's always there. It's always been there so far. I'm touching wood. You can't see me, but I'm touching wood. <laughs> Well, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about your charity, Gardens for the Gambia. Where did this uh, idea come from? This is very dear to my heart. I'm very pleased to talk to you about it. I uh, was traveling in Africa, researching my novel, A Respectable Trade, which is about slavery. It starts in West Africa and ends up actually in Bristol. It's a novel about slavery in England, in 18th century England, which, again, not many people know about. But it starts in West Africa, you know, really where slavery has the greatest hold and uh, I was visiting a school just for interest and the schoolmaster asked me would I contribute some funds to put a well in the garden of his school uh, he called it a garden it was just really an acre of sand it was incredibly impoverished and the school you wouldn't I wouldn't keep my horses in the conditions it was a breeze block building with a corrugated down roof uh, no water no drainage, uh, no windows, no desks, no chairs. The children sit on the earth floor and they learn by rote. They don't even have papers and pens. It's a level of poverty that we don't imagine. It's hard to imagine. And anyway, he had this plan that uh, if enough people gave him enough money, he would dig a well in the school garden. He would plant crops. The children would learn a new method of agriculture, which would be based on irrigation from the well, not depending on the rains. And then they would be better farmers later on, and the country would be more productive and not so dependent on rains which are failing. So, you know, like many foreign people, you know, when you're faced with a demand for your holiday money, I kind of sighed and went, well, how much would the well be? And he said £300, which uh, is about $600. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I tell you what, I'll write you a cheque for the full amount and... You can fax me. We didn't even have email then. You can fax me and tell me if it's worked. And I went home and went, if I've wasted my money, then more for me. And if it's worked, then that's pretty neat. And uh, about a fortnight later, I got a fax, and it said, the well is dug. It's on stream. We've dug the garden. We've got the seeds in. The children are learning. We've we've appointed a garden master to teach them. We've got a watchman who's making sure that the animals don't come in and invade. We've planted trees on the outside, and they're going to be our cash crop, oranges and cashew nuts and walnuts. And um, we thank you very, very much, very much. And the next door school would like a well as well. (laughs) (laughs) And I went, well, I bet they would. And what a wonderful, wonderful project. So I wrote an article about it for a magazine, and people sent me donations, and I paid for the well of the next door school. And that's literally how it started. Well, that's wonderful. It rolled out across Gambia. We've now got 80 wells, and uh, a school in Chicago is sponsoring us as their year project, which will transform our work next year. So it will just become almost overnight a very much more successful and bigger charity. 
Well, that's uh, very inspiring. And, and last question for you, Philippa Gregory, is uh, what is uh, what's next for you? Any any new uh, books or projects on the horizon? I've got a very new and very exciting project coming up, which is that I'm going to go back in time. I'm going to write about the Plantagenet family, who are the immediate predecessors of the Tudors. So in a sense, it's going to be the arrival of the Tudors in England in the shape of Henry VII at the field of the Battle of Bosworth and the family that immediately preceded him. And they are, you know, if you think the Tudors are pretty wild and uh, uncontrollable lot, the Plantagenets are even worse. I think it's going to be a really exciting project to work on. Well, uh, Philippa Gregory, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we've uh, really appreciated uh, hearing from you. It's been a pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to coming to Washington and meeting you all. Well, and we're very excited to have you, and uh, you and, uh, well, your fans will be able to hear more from you at the National Book Festival. That is Saturday, September 27th on the National Mall in Washington between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. If you'd like more details and a complete list of participating authors, visit www.loc.gov bookfest. From the Library of Congress in Washington, this is Matt Raymond. Thank you for listening. <laughs>